stand together and sing of God's holiness to the Lord God Almighty. before you now and we proclaim your holiness holy 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 not once not twice but three times lord we we proclaim your holiness we proclaim your perfection your greatness and lord we uh, just want to bow before you as your servants and worship you in spirit and in truth today it's in christ's name we pray amen go ahead and be seated and uh, grab one of those connection cards and we would love to have you fill that out, especially if you're maybe a first or second time guest. Please fill that out. Let us know that you're worshiping with us today. Uh, for the rest of us, you may have a prayer request. Be sure and jot that down. We'll be faithful to pray for that. But especially on the, on the back bottom part of that card, if you have a question about the church, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? What does it mean to be baptized? What is what, Church membership, all that type of stuff. Be sure and, and check one of those, and we will get back with you and answer those questions, okay? So do that, and and put that in the offering plate at the end of the, of the service. Well, we started the service by singing a, a, one of God's uh, greatest attributes, His holiness. And because of His holiness, He acts certain ways. Amen? And this is one way that He acts in mercy. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the I'm 
Let's read Psalm 86, 15 together. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As we think about that mercy and love, let's sing this great, great hymn. It's maybe one of the greatest word picture hymns of all time. Let's sing together. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair fell down with care, but gave his son.
on the good, good Father in these next few moments. good, good Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I trust that you've come to understand and have come to grips with the fact that the problem uh, or the heart of the problem is actually the problem of the heart. That is, of course, what we've learned in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The most twisted and corrupt thing about us is not the way we were raised by our parents. It's not the influence of society in which we live, although there's a lot of influence in the society of which we live. The most twisted and corrupt reality about all of us is our own hearts, our own desires, and our own thoughts. If we come to grips with that truth, then we are well on our way of being made right with God. Because until you realize that, your sinful condition before God, then you never understand the need for grace. So it's essential that we understand this. There's a lot of misery and darkness in the first three verses of Ephesians 2. Would you all agree? Dead in trespasses and sins. Walking according to the course of this world. Living under the direction of the prince of the power of the air. And following all of our own desires of which we have. And of course the end result of that. Paul gives out in unambiguous lines what the consequence is of our state before the Lord. Notice it. End of verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath. And before you came to Christ, like the rest of mankind. All of us, apart from Christ, are children of wrath. God doesn't just look down upon the face of this world and humanity and say, Wow, I wish the world they lived in was not so tough. The God who created the world doesn't look down upon the world and say, you know what? Uh, if Satan would just go away, everything would be okay. He doesn't look down and say, well, I know mankind is really trying hard. My friends, that's not God's perspective at all. The Word of God is God's perspective. And God says, apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. That's our condition, apart from Christ. We are not as bad as we possibly could be on every given day. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 reveals to us that we are as bad off as we possibly can be. 
separated, doomed. Just, just think of the terminology that's given here. Helpless, rebellious, and under wrath. Now, with all that said, it's not designed to depress you. So smile. If you're saved today, it's designed to be a piece of black velvet, like a jeweler would use to magnify and highlight the character of the treasure. And in our case, the treasure is the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about this for a moment. It's designed to highlight and magnify the glorious aspects of the riches of God's mercy and love in saving condemned sinners like you and me. That's what this is for. Mercy and love would mean absolutely nothing if it were not for the fact that we're in a bad condition. It wouldn't mean the same. We're under the condemnation of God outside of Jesus Christ. So this is why I've said all along in this study of the book of Ephesians that it's impossible to truly understand grace unless you understand the depths of sin. You've got to understand the doctrine of total depravity in order to actually understand grace correctly. In other words, grace will not be grace until you see that you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's your condition. Well, I'm stoked about preaching verse 4. I am. I, re I really am. Verses 1 through 3 told us about our condition. Last time I checked, it's not too flattering a position at all. But beginning in verse 4, we're going to learn about God and what he has done to us and why he does that. So, in actually preparing this, I had every intent to preach to you, God made us alive in Christ and finish verses 4 through 7. This is a constant refrain around this church, isn't it? <laughs> And so, in line with that, I was going to preach on mercy and love, which are given here. Rich in mercy, wherein he loved us. He loved us, right? And I could not pull that off. So, today, we're going to talk about uh, an incredible uh, conjunction, but God. And we're going to talk about who God is and how he is rich in mercy. And next week, we'll pick up love to end out God made us alive with Christ. But let me show you the overall outline, beginning in verse, this goes from 4 uh, down through verse 10 of the text of Scripture. All right. Okay, you want me to read it? Let's read it. And then I'm going to give you the, okay, yes. That is our overall outline. 4 through 7, made us alive with Christ. 8 and 9, saved by grace through faith. Verse 10, predestined unto good works. You may think about it like this. And, and literally, in the grammar, here's how it works. Raised with Christ, reigning with Christ, right? Seated, and then predestined unto good works. Those are the three major grammatical structural things that you have to think about. Uh, and again, you didn't even get the subject or the verb of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 until you got to verse 4. There's no subject of the text until you get to verse 4. The subject is God, and the main verb is made us alive. Hallelujah for him making us alive. So here's the emphasis, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, it puts together agape, and then it's a verb form, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God made us alive with Christ. Now, if you learn nothing else today, learn this. But God. Are y'all tracking with me? This may be called the greatest antithesis of all time. What is an antithesis? Well, it is something that is in contrast to something else. So this is the greatest antithesis of all time. But God. In other words, these two words set the desperate condition of mankind against the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God to save sinners. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God. We lived according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, but God. It should be read like this. We formerly all lived in the lust of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of the world, but 
God. John Stott wonderfully said, It is essential that we hold both parts in contrast together, namely our nature. Do we need to preach that again? Verses 1 through 3, and God's divine compassion. We hold in contrast God's wrath, but also God's love. And I confess to you that these are the two most powerful one-syllable words that you could ever hear and put together in your entire life due to your sinful condition apart from Christ. But God. Please consider with me the great but God statements in the history of redemption. We often refer to that as redemptive history. Well, one of the very first ones we have is this. The waters prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah. Isn't that awesome? Here's what Joseph said after his brothers were wondering if Joseph would have their heads for selling him into slavery uh, to the Midianites. And here's what Joseph says to them. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. The psalmist cries out, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and of my inheritance. Y'all remember Peter's first sermon at Pentecost? It was a pretty good one. Right? 3,000 people were slayed by the Spirit of God in the right sense. Right? Here's what the Bible says. Preaching his first sermon, Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hand of lawless men, but God raised him up. Acts 13, 29 And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in the tomb. Remember this last week? But God raised him from the dead. So the but God demonstrates, as it says in Romans 5, 8, it demonstrates God's love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the antithesis, church family? Our condition under the wrath of God, but God. Under wrath, enter in love and mercy. What a wonderful plan of God to redeem sinners. But God offers incredible strong confidence to the soul, does it not? If you're lost today, you don't know the Lord, and you are in the condition of dead and trespasses and sin, uh, walking according to the lust of the world, under the wrath of God, here's what you need to understand. But God enslaved in a sinful condition, headed your own way, without God in your mind whatsoever, not searching after God, you, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, are a walking sepulcher unto yourself, but God. You are entombed in wrath from God, but God. Do I need to hammer this antithesis anymore? How incredibly clear it is. Think about this. You may be enslaved to sin today, but God. Consider this. It's tough raising kids in this world, isn't it? I don't know if y'all figured this out or not, but kids can rip your heart right out of your chest. But God. Amen? But God. You may be surrounded by the most profane people in the history of the world on your job. And it's about to get the best of you. But God. You may be listening to MSNBC and CNN and all this, and you're about to give up on world life, period. You look at society's ills, and you hear spewing out of the mouths of those who are quote-unquote leaders of our country, that on one hand, you say you believe in life, but on the other hand, you kill people at the border. Or, you're aborting babies, and we're just in this situation where, what in the world is going on with our country? But God... What a sense of hope our God gives us. It's an anchor for the soul. If you can't see the contrast, then you're not locked into grace. If you can't appreciate the contrast of being made alive in Christ, then you don't understand what your condition was before you met Christ. But God what? And I wish I could tell you what, both, what God did together, 
love and mercy. But let's just hit this one. God is rich in mercy. Have you ever studied the word mercy in depth in your lifetime? Have you ever perused through the Old Testament and New and New Testament and thought on the word mercy? I think if you do, you'll marvel at it. In the Old Testament, there are a couple of words that are used to describe what we would call mercy. Now catch this. It takes a lot of English words to be able to define mercy the way the Old Testament does it. Okay? Let me just go ahead and tell you that. It's, it's, it's hard because it's such sweeping terminology that we're given. The first word is chesed. Now I put the guttural in there. You know why? Because that's the way it's pronounced in Hebrew. And we often refer to it as hesed, but it's not. It has a C in front of it. It's chesed. You want to say that? Right? Come on. Let's, let's practice. Ready? One. No, you're not, you're not in, right? That word is used 243 times in the Old Testament to describe the mercy of God. It is actually describing God's loyal covenant love. It's translated mercy. Loving kindness. Thy loving kindness is greater than life. Chesed. But there's another one, and it's called rakom. And the Greek translation of that word, compassion, means it proceeds from the bowels. It's the idea of visceral pity for someone in need. Now, that's the normal way we think of mercy, is it not? Somebody we pity upon because they actually have a need. And my goodness, when you read verses 1 through 3, I got a need. And you do too. But that's not the only definition of mercy. So when we put these two things together, it is simply not having pity for someone. It is also God's covenant love and compassion and faithfulness to save sinners of which he cannot abandon. It is his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness. I want to show you an interesting text of scripture that you probably would have never thought about when it comes to mercy. And it is kind of different, but I want you to turn to Exodus See, God was merciful in the Old Testament, amen? amen? Right? We often think, Old Testament, bad, mean God. New Testament, sweet Jesus. I want to remind you that the God of the old is the God of the new, and vice versa. No difference whatsoever. So he is rich in mercy. Now check this out. Moses is on a mission, and it's not safe. It's not safe whatsoever to ask God to show you his glory. It's not safe. Okay, look what it says in chapter 33, verse 17. Glad to hear the pages of Scripture turning. Okay, the Bible says, Exodus 33, 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. He's on a mission that's not safe. And he said, I will make all my goodness, check that out, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now, when Moses requests this to see the Lord's glory, I, I want to remind you to file this away in your brain. God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. File this away in your brain. God's goodness is the apex of his glory. I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Notice the next part. And I will proclaim, you, proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. This means I'm going to declare to you the who and the what I am. And then he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show, there it is, mercy, compassion, on whom I will show mercy. Here are the two words, kesed and rakom, put in the same narrative. Now, let your eyes focus over to chapter 34. In my Bible, it's page 81. All right? If you're in Exodus, and just on the same page, look at chapter 34. How do we define goodness? Verse 6, Then the Lord passed before me and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, well, I think I'm right on that. It could be Yahweh Elohim, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, check this out, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin. Hey, but listen to this, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here is Moses requesting to see God's glory. I will have my goodness go before you. And what is the heart of his goodness? Mercy, compassion, loving kindness. Now, folks, God could have consumed Moses right there on the mountain. He could have. In fact, Moses would have dissipated like a morning dew if he would have caught really a true glimpse of God. So understand, these are anthropomorphic terms. What does that mean? We're using human terms to try to describe what God is like. God is spirit, and no one has seen God at any time. Well, we know the Son of God made him manifest, right? But, but bef- just think about this for a moment. You cannot see the Lord and live. So God says, I'm going to hide you. Any songs ever written about this? In the cleft of the rock. And my goodness will go before you. And, oh my goodness, he's describing to you his mercy. The very mercy that he's rich in, in essence, and the only way you can be saved is the mercy of God. This is what he's describing. Goodness. David stole my verse. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God gracious. Hebrew word, rakom. And merciful. Kesed. Slow to anger and great in steadfast love and faithfulness. Kesed. Let's see another one. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful, rakom, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Have kessed. All right, let me show you another text of Scripture. Very interesting. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Jonah. Bible drill time. I'm watching you. Let's see who can find it. Raise your hand when you find Jonah. All right. Oh, you already found it? They teach Bible drill. Anybody else found Jonah? Oh, Craig's got up there in the balcony, right? Good, good. Oh, I get hands going up. Okay, Jonah. How did Jonah view the Assyrians? Oh, not good. Jonah did not have good at all toward the Assyrians. The Ninevites, Assyrians, man, they hung people and skinned them alive. And furthermore, they were the ones that were oppressing the Israelites. So Jonah's desire was this. God, if you just smoke them then we're all good. But that's not what God does, nor the way God functions or who he is. Now check it out. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, Jonah's like, you know why I jumped on the ship to Tarshish? Because I didn't want to go preach the gospel to them. Because if I did, they'd get saved and I don't like them. Here's what he says. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And my favorite text, Micah 7, verse 18. And as long as you didn't leave the book of Jonah, all you have to do is turn right. All right? Micah chapter 7, verse 18. If you did leave Jonah, it's Jonah, Micah, Nahum. That's funny, right? That helps you, right? They're small books as well. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Don't you love this? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights. Check this out. God delights in mercy. God delights in steadfast love. Kessid. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is like you, Lord? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant 
of your inheritance. Mm. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Now I trust that throughout the Old Testament, it's been revealed to you that God is a God of mercy. Covenant love. Compassion. He is the God of compassion and mercy to those in need. But he's also the God of covenant-keeping loyalty. To his covenant, right? So, we may say, well, that's the definition of the Old Testament. Mean God. Well, what's the definition in the New Testament? Well, I want to remind you that mercy is picked up in the New Testament over and over and over again. Here's one of my favorite ones, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not by works done in righteousness by us, but according to his mercy. There it is, the bringing together of both of those Hebrew words. Pity in our situation, yes, but covenant love. Yes, steadfast love, faithfulness from God. How do you do this? By the washing of regeneration. Don't let that word scare you in Baptist life. It means basically to take something that was dead and make it alive. And last time I checked, you were dead. And God regenerated you. And a fruit of that regenerated spirit is faith. He made you alive. And renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. How were you forgiven? Mercy. How were you regenerated? Mercy. How were you saved? Mercy. It wasn't according to the righteous that you've done. You know why? Because we don't have any. It's not the righteousness we've done. And if anyone is ever to be saved, it will happen in one way and one way only. The mercy of God. Folks, just understand something. Your condition, antithetical to the God that created you because of sin... And yet God Almighty would take the initiative to save people that are under wrath. That is called mercy. That God would save any of us is mercy. I love what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born to a living hope. How? Great mercy. It was by God's great mercy That he has saved us into a living hope. It is a sovereign mercy that extends to his people. Romans chapter 9 verse 15. I know this is not a popular verse of scripture. But it is in the Bible. And Moses gives this statement originally. God will show mercy upon whom he will show mercy. And then Paul will take that verse and quote it in this context. Romans chapter 9. It would be really good for you to look at it. Romans 9, verse 15. Let's start in verse 14. Listen to the word. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, y'all remember this? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. Is everybody reading that clearly? You're not saved By your human will. You never can be. You're saved by the will of God. Who extends the mercy. Not by human will or exertion. But here we are. On God. I am so thankful that God exerted. Right? I am so thankful that God actually exerted in giving us mercy. So folks when it says God is rich in mercy... Don't just bum-fuzzle over that in the Scripture. Stop and pause and think about it. That's exactly what he does in Romans 12. I urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's mercy. Mercy not only saves you, but it should change the way you live based upon what you've been given. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because I'm a recipient of mercy. That's why I present my body as a living sacrifice before God. That's why I, you, don't let the world, you don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. Sounds like Titus 3.5. Why? Because of God's great mercy. Now, let's end with a couple of things. Do you agree that salvation is all of mercy? Yes. God's mercy is nothing less than the manifestation of God's own goodness. Right? 
I will, pass, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will have my goodness go before you. And then when he starts explaining what that goodness is, compassion, covenant loyalty, seeing your need, loving kindness. So mercy is an expression of God's love. It's an expression of God's compassion that flows out of his goodness to those, check this out, who don't merit it. Mercy and merit are mutually exclusive. Mercy comes to those who don't merit it. We actually have merited something and it's condemnation and wrath. That's what this text says. Mercy is not getting your paycheck on Friday. Well, if it is, that means you worked all week. And that's a good thing if you work. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. Hello, America. Right? The fact is, when you work all week, you get recompense or you get reimbursed, whatever you want to call it, for a week's wages and you get paid for it. Well, mercy has nothing to do with being recompensed or reimbursed. Okay? Mercy is not only an expression of God's love to those who don't merit it, but also mercy is 100% unexpected. Why? Just read the text. There's a logical conclusion when I look at Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the logical conclusion. Check it out. You were dead in trespass and sin in which you walked, followed the course of the world, Father, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Logical conclusion, I'm done. Logical conclusion of reading that text, I am by nature under the wrath of God, and I'm done. I... Anything that happens to me outside of that is going to be unexpected. In other words, the gallows are set out in the street. And I deserve to be on them. I deserve the condemnation for my sins. This is what we would expect. Logical conclusion. Now do you see the beauty of but God? Think about this, folks. God acted in mercy. It is unexpected mercy. Mercy comes at the least expected time. And God's mercy is his Compassion overflowing freely, and it excludes any kind of merit on the part of the subject. Arthur Pink was a great pastor and, and writer. Here's what he said years ago. God's mercy is God's great inclination to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. That's me. Do, do, you, uh, do you qualify as a fallen creature? Then it's only the mercy of God that can relieve our misery. It's only the grace of God that can change us. So in our condition, we must have divine help. And in his mercy, God reveals himself as a compassionate God. But this passage says more. It doesn't just say, but God in mercy. It actually says, but God being rich in mercy. So in other words, his mercy is rich because of his wealth. Now, this is just my stab at it, but here's what I believe. I believe that mercy, that mercy, that wealth is an attribute of God. Can I show you? Revelation chapter 5. If you don't want to turn there, just listen. They should be familiar to you. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and, no, not yet, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why do I think that it is according to the rich mercy? Because God's nature in his attribute is that God is a God of wealth. Exceedingly. In other words, that means there's no end to his mercy. Are you getting the connection? It, if, if he's rich in mercy, that means it can't run out. Why? Because God is wealthy, not in money. He's got all that too, right? If he wants it. But the fact of the matter is, we're, we're speaking of his nature. Paul will say in Romans 2, 4, that it is the riches of God's kindness. Why would Paul continually use a word like riches? When you get to uh, chapter 9, verse 23... Riches of God's glory. When you get to uh, Romans 10, 12, the unsearchable riches of Christ. When you get to Ephesians 3, 8, the book we're studying, the riches of his 
grace. Same thing, uh, Ephesians 1, 7, riches of his grace. In other words, there's no end to his wealth, therefore there is no end to his mercy. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said it, the psalmist said it this way, his mercies are new every morning. Why? Because it's his wealth. Now, last, last chapter, last book I'm going to have you go to. You ready for that? Bible drill 101, Psalm 136. You got to love this psalm if you're a believer. What you have in every verse is a statement about what God has accomplished. And then line B in the Hebrew in every verse has a response. God is good for his steadfast love. Say it. Endures how long? Forever. It's an entire psalm of praise to God for his mercy. So when you have the doldrums, is that a word here? Yeah, in, in, in Ozark. It was in Alabama and Georgia, right? When you're down on yourself, uh, remember this, you do find your identity in the Christ you belong to. Y'all do realize that, right? He's a good, good father. <clears throat> uh, goodness, right? That, that defines uh, it begins to define you as a believer. But I want to remind you that when you're down and you're out, pick up Psalm 136. You've got a lot to praise God for. And the number one thing you should be praising Him for is mercy. That they're new. That He gives it to us. We get this resounding refrain over and over again. His mercy is everlasting and it endures forever. Is it any wonder why Paul said God is Rich in mercy. Check out a few of these. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let your eyes zip down to verse 7. To him who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. You want to stop right there and say, mm, evolution? No. Creation? Yes. The moon and stars to rule over the night. Accident? No. God did it. We thank you for your steadfast love which endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures There's a constant refrain, folks. And what are you thanking God for? Mercy. God is rich in mercy. He is the infinite and eternal God, and he never runs out of mercy. His mercy describes how he is functioning when it comes to doing good for us. Remember that. It's mercy. He never grows weary of showing mercy. Any of you guys married? Y'all know how to show mercy? Well, you got two sinners living under the same roof. Somebody's got to show mercy, right? It's just the way it is. Check this out. Our God never slumbers, he never sleeps, and he's got a wealth of mercy that never runs out. It's new every single day. He never gets bored with showing mercy. He delights, Micah 7, in showing mercy. Now, it stands to reason if you're a born-again believer, you ought to be good at showing mercy. But that's not always true in Baptist life. A lot of churches are fighting, been fighting, are choosing up sides, getting ready to fight. That's not mercy. No amens. Are you on the fighting side? Right? If you are, I have no mercy for you. No, I'm kidding. All right? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you understand that you've just heard the heart of the gospel. Mercy. Do you remember the publican before the Lord? One man comes in and says, Well, I sure am glad I'm like, like, like this publican over here in the corner. And the publican hits himself on the chest and he says, God, be, Greek word, propitiated to me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. Folks, when you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and God gives you enlightened eyes of the heart to see it, then your only response is, thank you, Lord God, for mercy. Because I could not see. I was lost and blind. But you opened my eyes, illuminated my heart, gave me a, a will and a spirit to see the glorious gospel, and changed my life. We ought to have that in there. And we ought to say, thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. It also means that there's no sinner that has really ever lived or that lives today that would be outside of the reach of God's mercy. 
Is that not true? If he's got a wealth of mercy, he can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. No matter who it is, right? The Ayatollah hiding in a cave somewhere over there in Pakistan or wherever. God Almighty can interrupt his life and save him in a half a hallelujah. In a half a hallelujah. Second, right? He can. He's that powerful. The same God who hid Moses in the cleft of the rock so that Moses wouldn't be just totally dissipated like a morning dew is the same God that can awaken a sinner from his slumber immediately. That's the God we serve. Amen? So please go back to this antithesis. But God, he is rich in mercy. God is just visiting their transgressions to the first, second, third generation. But he is also compassionate. God is not only just, God is good. God is good. God is just, thus wrath. God is good, thus mercy. God delights in showing his overflow of goodness to lost sinners. So no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done or how bad you've been, God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, offers you mercy today. Unless you've missed it, in Ephesians 4, why can, Ephesians 2, why can God be so merciful? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. You can't be made alive apart from Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. That's why the cross, mercy. So that God could be both just and the justifier of men. How can God remain absolutely just? In other words, I'm not sweeping your sin under the rug, but at the same time reach out and save sinners. It's because of the righteousness of the Son of God. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you believe in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, when, you, when it moves you unto a place of unbelief to believe, and you put your faith and trust in Christ only and turn from sin and self, then you are raised with Christ. Mercy. That's what that is. Some of you say to me, Pastor, you don't know how bad I've been. Forget I and insert but God. You say, well, you don't know the things that I've done. Take out the you and insert but God. Are y'all getting this? Amen, right? You may have spurned his mercy many, many times. Today is another day of mercy. They're new every day. God is rich in mercy and you haven't exhausted it. This week I stumbled upon a song called Depth of Mercy. It was written by Charles Wesley in 1770, I think. But it was brought back, reworked somewhat, new tune, right, David? By Sovereign Grace Ministries in 1997. Depth of mercy can there be. How deep is the mercy of God? If you're honest before the Lord, you have to say, God, will it, will it even reach me? Can it reach me? I'm a rotten, good-for-nothing, sorry sinner. Can your mercy reach me? But I want, I've got news for you. In the depth of God's mercy, it can reach even me. It can reach you. But God being rich in mercy. David is going to lead us in that song. Now, I know this. Look at me. Most of you don't know this song. You probably never heard it before. You don't have to sing it. If you want to, do it. But what I really want you to do is to listen to Brother David as he sings this song. And you think about these words. And here's the deal, folks. You may have come to church today and you thought, you know what? God's mercy has run out. I want to remind you, he is rich in mercy. He can save anybody in this building under the sound of my voice. Amen? All right, so listen to the words. And if God so move your heart, would you trust Jesus today? And for Christians, listen to this. If God can extend mercy for his enemies, which we all were, how much more so is his mercy rich for people who know him? God is merciful. And some of you are believers in this place, and you think you're a failure. You think, you know what? Hey, let's all be honest. We look at our Christian lives, and we look at the price that was paid on Calvary. We look at the gift of the grace of God, and we're like, I'm pathetic. How can I ever live up to it? Well, you can't. You can't, but something ought to embolden us to trust the God that which we belong to. Something ought to embolden us to live the Christian life like we should. In other words, we need a little bit of gutsy guilt because we're all stinking guilty. But in reality, we've been given a gift 
that is immeasurably more than we could ever imagine. You've been gifted with the mercy of God. God took a vessel that deserved, Romans 9, to be put away and done. A vessel of dishonor. And he made you a vessel of honor. Amen! Amen. Right? That's what God did for you. So quit walking around like this. Defeated all the time. And everything is about how I can psychoanalyze myself to get me back on my feet. Trust the God who gave you mercy. I'm going to preach the second sermon. All right. If you don't know the Lord today, trust him. Amen. Brother David, let's sing. Listen to the words. Depth of mercy can there be Mercy reaching even God the just his wrath forbears Me the chief of sinners spares So many times my heart has strayed From his kind and perfect ways Making clear my desperate need for his blood poured out for me. Give me grace, Lord, let me own all the wrongs that I have done. That's one aspect of being saved right there. Let me know my sins Look to you and sin no more. Therefore, me the Savior stands, holding forth his wounded hands, his scars which ever cry for me, once condemned, but now set free. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Once condemned. Ephesians 2, verse 4. Now set free. Amen? All because of the mercy and grace and love of God. To God be the glory. He alone deserves the credit. Jonah, Jonah 2, 9. Salvation is of the Lord. To God be the glory. All right. Well, you know what? The God of heaven is a hound. And he won't let you get away. Even though the preacher is through preaching, you leave and the Holy Spirit of God goes with you and he's in the world and he convicts of sin. In other words, you're not safe from getting saved today. God will be the hound of heaven toward you. You'll get caught in the net of the Holy Spirit of God and you won't be able to get loose. I promise you. He's a covenant-keeping God to his inheritance. And he's going to remain that way. To God be the glory. Tonight, there is a very, very special meeting. And I need all of members of FBCO to be here. Okay? Uh, we've been praying, working for some two years. And now we've got a large portion of our church that had flooded. We've got to put it back together. So there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. Okay? So I trust that you will come back tonight. Uh, I called it this morning a town meeting in the first service. And I took time to recognize Rick Gardner, uh, our mayor who's going out. He did a good job in our, in our he loves the Lord. And we appreciate Rick. But it's going to be kind of like that. It's going to be your opportunity to ask questions, discussion. Uh, but we want to come away from that, maintaining the unity, right, that the Lord God has given us as a church body. We may not always, we might all, all, we may not always agree across the board. But for the sake of unity and following direction and leadership, we're going to trust God. Amen? All right? Okay, that's it. I'm done. Come back tonight, 530.